Welcome to Sword and Scandal, the show where we chronicle the human saga through the lens of world cinema. I'm your host, Chico Leo, and this is episode one, The Dawn of Man. Earth has existed for 4.6 billion years. Humans have been around for 300,000 years. Uh, there's a famous like colloquial framing out there mm-hmm. that if uh, if the Earth was a year old and was born on January 1st, life didn't actually begin until February 25th, and Homo sapiens didn't show up until 1136 on the evening of December 31st, New Year's Eve. So in the relatively tiny, tiny fraction of time that we have been here on Earth, we went from being lower on the food chain than cats and dogs So now, literally, we're devouring the planet like Galactus. Obviously, there's a million ways to chart that process. We're going to use movies, starting with caveman movies, then Bible movies, and then ancient Egypt movies, and so on and so forth, until we get to the 21st century. 2001 A Space Odyssey is one of the most significant films of the 20th century by one of its most celebrated directors, Stanley Kubrick. But we're only going to talk about the movie's prologue, The Dawn of Man, set three million years ago shortly after chimps and the apes who would become human split from the same ancestor. So that really is the point where this is our first ancestor that's not, you know, is is not also an ancestor of chimps or gorillas or bonobos or anything like that. Um, so even though we split off uh, from them, we actually still share, three million years later, we still share 96 to 99% of our DNA with chimps. Um, the number of genetic differences between mice and rats is ten times bigger than that between humans and chimps. Dawn of Man opens on a stark and beautiful desert landscape in what is now Zimbabwe. Uh, totally devoid of life, um, reminding us perhaps of what the Earth looked like for the first half billion years uh, before there was any life on it. Just stunning rock formations, rugged scenery... Um, the really exquisite compositions, something Kubrick is known for. And as, as the shots actually become less majestic and, and more specific, we see an ape skeleton bleaching in the sun. We see bits and detritus of the scrub and, and little, little plants and tubers and things. And we meet a, a small troop of apes eking out, um, what has to be a, a, grueling and stressful existence, basically spending all day trying to scrape together enough calories to survive the horrors of the night. So when we're first introduced to them, they're mixed in with a small group of tapers rooting around, again, you know, just looking for tubers and scrubby plants to eat. Um, Amidst, actually, there's just like the bones of of their dead and the taper dead um, sort of all around them. It's kind of of grim. And uh, they eat the same food as as the the tapers and the apes, but uh, the way they go about doing it is different enough that I guess they're able to coexist like, you know, birds and squirrels in a tree. Um, I think the point here uh, that Kubrick's making is at this point, the apes don't seem that different than tapers, except for the fact they have two legs and the tapers have four. Which is demonstrated quite neatly in the next scene when three or four apes are foraging and a leopard uh, pounces on one of them from above. (laughs) 
Um, the ape screeches a lot and makes a puny, puny attempt uh, to fight the leopard off. And frankly, might have had a chance if the others jumped in, but they don't even consider it. Um, they, they literally clear out um, and let the uh, the ape and the leopard go one-on-one, uh, -on -one and, and it does not end well for the ape. And that's pretty much the score, at least at this point in the game. Basically, the story of people is a game of uh, relentlessly just leveling up the food chain with tons and tons of sex and violence along the way. Uh, more often than not combined, uh, which is why movies make for an ideal lens through which to chronicle it. Uh, there are also plenty of reasons why movies are not an ideal lens, and we'll definitely get to that uh, again and again, I'm sure. We reached the top of the food chain a while ago, but we're still climbing full speed forward, so soon we're not going to have anything left to eat but each other and the actual planet out from under us. But uh, that's still, like, worst-case scenario, according to scientists, 12 or 13 years away. Back three million years ago, in a desert in Zimbabwe, the worst-case scenario was night. Every night. Uh, crouched in caves and crevices, and it's pitch black, and you can't see shit, but you can hear tons and tons of predators roaring and hunting nearby. And, and these guys don't even have a cave. These are not even cavemen or cave apes. They're so ghetto that they, they, they literally have like a, like a rock... Uh, shelf that they're that they that they basically hide under at night uh to protect them uh from the elements and uh and and hunting predators um and it's grim and that's just the animals leopards and direwolves and yes giant giant direwolves existed back then in fact basically every animal uh that exists now that existed then was probably twice as big then uh as they are now but yeah, le leopards and direwolves are one thing, but just as The Walking Dead suggested, it's not zombies or leopards that you really have to worry about. The number one threat is always, always other people. And three million years ago, other people is anyone who wasn't part of your immediate troop or tribe or whatever. One day, uh, our, our troop of apes are at their water hole, uh, at their water hole getting water, and um, I'm not actually sure if how apes drink, but these guys definitely like dip their hands into the water, cup their hands, and bring it to their mouth. They don't put their face into the water when they drink. They actually do cup their hands and bring the water to their mouths. Um, I don't know if that's like a human thing or whatever. But um, yeah, they're at, they're at their waterhole getting water when another troop of similar apes creeps up on them from over the rocks and immediately challenges them. It gets super physical, but there are no blows thrown. Uh, both sides jump around and wave their arms. Uh, they bare their teeth that stick out their chests uh, and definitely screech aggressively at each other. Um, uh, I mean, what's amazing is that literally three million years later, it's not di very different than what you see like two groups of like drunk guys after a hockey game or, you know, a world star video or whatever. But um, basically uh, one side backs down and it's our guys. Um, they get basically, uh, you know, shamed into, uh, you know, slinking away. Might makes right. And, uh, you know, the dominance is established by the other uh, the other apes and our crew backs down and uh, slinks away.
That night or a few nights later, they're asleep under their rock shelf, um, and they're awakened to uh, some kind of celestial hum, and it's the smooth micropolyphonic sounds of George Ligeti's Requiem. Um, and here I'm actually going to quote from uh, 1980s Kubrick, the definitive edition. In his last six films, Kubrick preferred selecting recorded music over having it composed for a film, believing that no hired composer could do as well as the public domain classical composers. He also felt that building scenes from great music often created the most memorable scenes in the best films. George Ligeti was one of the most important, innovative, and influential avant-garde composers of the second half of the 20th century. A Hungarian, very intense... Uh, Holocaust themes all throughout his work. Uh, Kubrick is credited with introducing him to a much wider um, and, I guess, Western audience uh, when he used his music in uh, 2001. And he also actually, Ligeti, he also used him in uh, The Shining and Eyes Wide Shut. Back in Zimbabwe, the apes are drawn to a smooth black monolith floating above the ground. And they react by going crazy. They dance around it. They worship it. Um, they act actually like cats on catnip. They jump. They shout. They they touch it. They stroke it. They bow down to it. Um, all while the George uh, Ligeti music is blasting. And um, the, sequence, the sequence ends with this amazing shot of the monolith and the sun and the moon all lined up. There's an abrupt cut um, back to the like desert rock formations. And uh, the apes are foraging among some taper skeletons and not finding any anything to eat, anything to drink. Um, and then one of them has like a quick mental shot. Um, he um, Moonwatcher, and actually that's the name of the lead ape in the in the book. Um, but he uh, he's playing around with a bone of of one of the tapers, and he realizes that he can actually use it to smash things. And he smashes up some bones, and then there's a jump cut to a, a taper falling over. And then the next shot is him uh, eating, like ripping and tearing into like huge hunks of uh, red meat. Um, and then the next shot is the whole troop is now eating, uh, raw red meat. So armed with protein and now accrued weapons, Moonwatcher and our, our crew go back to the waterhole to challenge the tribe that took over. And they, they basically have no idea what's coming. Um, the, the Moonwatcher just basically goes and beats the tribe's leader to death with a bone. And all the other apes have bones as well. And they each actually come over and, and hit the, hit the leader of the other tribe while he's down. Um, and the, the thump of the bone, uh, of each of the different bones hitting the, the other ape is, uh, a very particularly memorable piece of Foley work. Really, uh, really, really visceral. And uh, the other members of the of, of, of the other troop, they, they don't have really understand what's going on, but they, they see that, that that their leader is just is dead. And um, they basically want no part of that, and they take off. And again, Mike might makes right. Um and our troop has their waterhole back. Um, Moonwatcher throws the bone in the air, and and that's it. Uh, it's uh, one, one small step for apes, and one uh, giant leap for ape kind. 
Kubrick's famed for his uh, fastidious attention to detail, and he and Arthur C. Clarke, uh, who wrote the screenplay uh, in in consultation with Kubrick, and also the book of 2001: A Space Odyssey, concurrently, um, they apparently got a lot right. Um, especially, as there's been mad scientific discoveries over the last half century since 2001 came out. Uh, including the fact that the earliest known signs of hominids eating meat are from 3.4 million years ago in Ethiopia. So if our troop and Dawn of Man are the first apes who ate meat, then Kubrick and Clark were off by about 2,000 miles and maybe about 400,000 years. But in reality, evolution was happening all over the place at different rates, and it's very possible some other troop was eating meat in Ethiopia 400,000 years earlier. Uh, but our crew in Zimbabwe would have had no way of knowing that, and they definitely came to it on their own, um, or with the help of alien intelligence, if, uh, if that's your thing. The monolith and the idea of a an alien superior intelligence playing a role in human evolution is uh, the, the thematic tie-in with the rest of 2001 The Space Odyssey. And I'm not really going to go there. Um, Kubrick is known as uh, to being a, a really cynical director. And so I'm going to be uh, less cynical and say that we did, in fact, evolve, because that's what basically science says, you know, naturally, um, as opposed to had an alien intelligence come down and uh, imbue us with, uh, you know, superpowers and, and intelligence. Um, you can definitely go on YouTube and spend several lifetimes going down many rabbit holes related to that. But as far as I'm concerned, the monolith is ultimately no different than the opening of the X-Files movie, where two Neanderthals fight an alien in a cave. Kubrick actually once said in an interview that uh, he thought his most optimistic film was The Shining, because it actually posits an afterlife, because, you know, there are ghosts. So that's, I mean, you know, he, he he's about as cynical as it gets, and... Um, yeah, I'm 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 gonna I'm calling uh, you know a flag on the play as far as that being historically accurate, um, but where where Cooper really really went to town, uh, as in terms of uh, detail was with the ape suits and with the photographic backdrops. I just want to shout out Hollywood's extensive history with ape suits and talk about where the Dawn of Man fits in there for a second. When you think of the five or ten most essential shots from Golden Age Hollywood, the iconic shot of Marlena Dietrich removing the head from her gorilla suit in von Sternberg's Morocco almost always makes the list. I think it's safe to say that after the cowboy hat, the tuxedo, and dresses by Edith Head, gorilla suits were the fourth most important costume in 20th century Hollywood. Whether for comedy or suspense or horror, guys in gorilla suits have been showing up on the regular in movies since the first silent version of Tarzan over a hundred years ago, making appearances in way, way more movies than you realize. And while they hit their peak in the 1930s and 40s when the studios employed multiple gorilla impersonators, 1968 was hands down Hollywood's banner year as far as ape suits are concerned. As a quick aside, while the 30s and 40s saw the peak of gorilla suits in Hollywood, the 50s and 60s saw comic book sales whose circulation was in the millions at the time, 
increased by hundreds of thousands every time a gorilla or ape appeared on the cover, and eventually DC Comics had to institute a one-gorilla-cover-per-month rule across their entire line. Anyway, in 1968, two movies created the double-headed gold standard for all cinematic ape suits to come, influencing the next couple of generations of makeup and effects artists until CGI came along and took over the waterhole. In addition to 2001 A Space Odyssey, 1968 also saw the release of the original Planet of the Apes. 2001 A Space Odyssey won the Best Visual Effects Oscar and was nominated for Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Production Design, losing to The Graduate, In the Heat of the Night, and Dr. Doolittle, respectively. But it wasn't even nominated for Best Costume Design, and Best Makeup wasn't even a category yet. Arthur C. Clarke claimed the snub was unintentional because most voters, most Oscar voters, like many viewers of the time, actually thought they were watching real apes and not guys in costumes. Quick word on Arthur C. Clarke. I I meant to mention this earlier when I first brought him up, but Arthur C. Clarke was a respected and influential British science fiction writer who was also a scientist. Uh, 2001 is based on a short story he wrote called The Sentinel. Kubrick optioned the short story, and they worked on the script together for a long time while doing crazy amounts of research. Uh, And at the same time, Clark was fleshing out the short story into what would become the relatively short novel, 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's actually the only way we know Moonwatcher's name is from the novel. Anyway, as part of the abundant research that was part of the pre-production, Stanley Kubrick consulted with all kinds of people to make sure the ape suits were as realistic as possible, including primatologists and prosthetic limb manufacturers. Um, The costumes were ultimately designed by Stuart Freeborn, who a little over a decade later would create Chewbacca, Yoda, Jabba the Hutt, and the Ewoks. Ironically, George Lucas originally wanted Yoda to actually be played by a monkey in a Yoda suit, and they got as far as actually teaching the monkey to walk with Yoda's Geimer stick, but in the end they went with uh, Frank Oz and the Muppets puppetry. And while Jabba has gone CGI and Yoda from puppet to CGI and back to puppet again, Chewbacca is still played by a guy in what is essentially an ape suit. Stuart Freeborn never won an Oscar, but he was featured in the In Memoriam segment at the 86th Oscars after he died at the age of 98 in 2013. John Chambers, who had designed Spock's ears a few years earlier, was the makeup and effects artist for Planet of the Apes, and he was given an honorary Oscar that year, recognizing his work's tremendous innovation. The Best Makeup Design and Hairstyle Oscar was created years later in 1981, when people were upset that the makeup in David Lynch's Elephant Man wasn't going to be recognized. A fun fact, John Chambers actually shows up as a character in Argo, where he's played by John Goodman. Rick Baker, the makeup artist with both the most Oscar nominations and most Oscar wins, was profoundly influenced by both Freeborn and Chambers' 1968 achievements, and he designed the ape-man costume for the monster movie send-up Schlock five years later, where he first teamed up with director John Landis, They, of course, later worked together and changed makeup history on American Werewolf in London and the Thriller video. Now, I just want to read a a quote from Rick Baker from Total Film in 2012, where he talks about the influence of 2001 and Planet of the Apes. I think I was 17 or 18 at the time, and they were two very different approaches for two very different films, and I really studied that. 
I thought it was really cool that Stuart Freeborn's apes could bare their teeth, their lips would pull back, and you could see their teeth. And the planet apes didn't do that. Their teeth were glued in their rubber muzzle, and they would open and close, or if they smiled, their teeth would kind of bend. But I think they both chose the right approach for the film that they were doing. Life and Art managed to come full circle when Rick Baker did the makeup and prosthetics for Tim Burton's remake of Planet of the Apes in, you guessed it, 2001. The movie itself is mostly trash, and Mark Wahlberg, Estella Warren, and Chris Christopherson have never been worse. But the makeup is exquisite, and there's some really interesting ape political and religious stuff in there. It's definitely worth revisiting just for the truly, truly gorgeous ape prosthetics. You could totally just fast forward through all the scenes with the humans. But yeah, so a a picture that won three Razzies and wasn't nominated for any Oscars turned out to be an appropriate swan song for gorilla suits in Hollywood. After that, with Peter Jackson's King Kong, the recent reboot of Planet of the Apes, and a ton of other movies, CGI took over, and you'll probably never ever see a gorilla suit or an ape suit in another movie unless it's being played for laughs or takes place in the past. Okay, so we've talked a bit about gorilla suits and ape suits, but what about the people inside of them? The main reason given that all of the actors in the ape suits in Dawn of Man are male is that apes have much narrower hips than humans. Much broader shoulders and much narrower hips. Even back in the 1920s, Carlos Cruz Gamora, who went by Charles and was known as King of the Gorilla Men for his many appearances playing gorillas and apes in Hollywood movies, was a slender, five foot four Filipino man. In The Dawn of Man, Daniel Richter, a professional mime, played Moonwatcher and choreographed the movements of the other man apes, who were mostly played by members of his standing mime troupe. Months before shooting, uh, Kubrick gave Richter a camera and told him to go film apes in the zoo to study their movement and behavior, something that uh, Gamora had also done 40 or 50 years earlier. Now I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs from uh, The Making of 2001, A Space Odyssey by Tashin. It's one of the most awesome film books I've ever come across. Um, And this is just uh, related to the ape costumes and the actors themselves. The actors had to have exceptionally thin arms and legs and narrow hips so that when they wore the costumes of hair, they wouldn't look bulky and like men stuffed in gorilla suits. It was an extremely complex task to produce ape-like masks with delicate articulation for bearing fangs, snarling, eating, drinking. A company that manufactured artificial limbs was contracted to produce a long-fingered, narrow, ape-like hand, which could be operated remotely by the actor's hand within the sleeve of a longer arm. This failed to look convincing and was abandoned. Facial makeup was created by making a plastic substructure skull with hinged jaw. A fine rubber mold was made with the equivalent of skin on the face. Hair was added as one would put hair on a wig. Movement in the lips was achieved by having a false tongue and false teeth and an arrangement of toggles that the actors could move with their tongues and that allowed the lips to curl left, right, or both directions. The eyes were the actors. The mask was made right up to the eyelids. I had actually always imagined that they dubbed in the sounds of real apes. But no, in fact, all of the ape sounds in Dawn of Man were recorded by Richter and his actors. 
And considering that they were mimes and used to working in silence, they do an extraordinary job of um, aping ape voices. In addition to the actors in the ape suits, there actually are two baby chimps in, uh, in I think, just one shot. They're in one scene. Um, but it actually shows that the troop is multi-generational and is probably some kind of uh, extended family. By the time Kubrick and Clark began their research for the Dawn of Man, science had already established that humanity began on the continent of Africa. As far back as 1871, Charles Darwin speculated in his book, The Descent of Man, that human life had begun in Africa since our closest relatives, the chimpanzee and the gorilla, lived there. In 1924, everything changed when the fossilized mold of an early human ancestor's brain was found in South Africa and provided the first definitive proof that Africa was the cradle of humanity. There must have been something in the water, because when the supercontinent Pangaea began separating into the seven continents we know today, 225 million years ago, there were tons of early primates on what would become South and Central America, but none of them evolved into humans the way the primates that remained on the continent that would become Africa did. Another thing that's worth noting is that the primates that ended up in South America when the continents floated apart um, all had tails, and the ones in Africa didn't. So all the all the primates in Africa, chimpanzees, baboons, gorillas, the things that we evolved from didn't have tails. And somehow that's connected to, uh, you know, I guess there, it's because there was so much jungle in South America and the tails were used as a fifth, um, you know, as a fifth uh, limb. And in Africa, you more had plains. I mean, there's certainly some jungle, but um, most of uh, most of the continent is not jungle. And um, yeah, so we are descended exclusively from African apes who didn't have tails. And the South American apes with tails, well, they're still South American apes with tails. And South America was the last continent settled by humans. They ended up, the humans that ended up there ended up there by walking from Africa over thousands and thousands and thousands of years through Europe and Asia, across the land bridge that used to exist in the Bering Strait, through Alaska and Canada, through North America and Mexico, and not stopping till they reached the tip of Chile, where the South Atlantic meets the South Pacific. Of course, along the way, you know, groups would stop and be like, all right, we're going to we're going to stop here and make this our home. Uh, but people always kept going for whatever reason. Some people kept going, kept kept it moving. And so basically the uh, populating of the earth, humans populating of the earth, was just a huge long journey of wandering where some people would stop and uh, make a camp or, you know, find a cave or whatever. And others would keep going, either pursuing game or looking for a better waterhole or looking for better climate, as there were several ice ages during the actual, um, you know, uh, pop populating the humans populating of the Earth, uh, the, the Great Migration out of Africa. And sometimes keeping on going was uh, the wrong decision. Uh, you could you could end up keeping up keeping on going and and run out of water and find no water, or there could be no food, or you could get eaten by any number of bears, lions, wolves, 
um, all, all of which were, were bigger in, in the past, as, as, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so it, just like the, the original trips out of Africa, like usually they ended in disaster. Most people who walked out of Africa died <laughs> pretty quickly. Um, some survived. It's exactly like the, the evolution, you know, first, the first fish that crawled onto land probably either died gasping, you know, pretty quickly or got eaten up by either a land predator or some kind of bird predator or something like that. So, uh, you know, evolution is, is like a savage, um, you know, game of, uh, Frogger almost basically, and so the, the, the people who ended up in South America were the result of, I mean, it's sort of like the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, um, you know, one in 10 of the original uh, first wave of American troops actually makes it to the embankment in, in that opening scene. I'm sure a lot less than one in 10, you know, people who walked out of Africa, you know, made it to either Europe or Asia, let alone South America. That said, Kubrick knew that the Dawn of Man would take place somewhere in East Africa. But his perfectionism and need for godlike control over every facet of his films, combined with a lifelong fear of flying, despite having a pilot's license for some reason, meant that he rarely, if ever, shot on location, with 1975's Barry Lyndon containing more location cinematography than all his other films combined because he shot it in castles and estates around England, where he'd lived since 1961. The Dawn of Man is the prologue to 2001 A Space Odyssey, but in fact it was the last part of the production filmed. It was shot after all the other scenes were wrapped. The establishing landscape shots were actually still photographs done by a second unit in Africa, directed by Kubrick with great specificity over the phone during the two years they were filming the Space Odyssey part of 2001. All the shots involving the apes were filmed on an MGM soundstage in England. So was the Space Odyssey stuff. Now, now I'm going to quote again from the great Tashin making of 2001 tome. The plate glass photos that were captured by the second unit in Africa made up the background of these shots. How it was done was the photos were made into 8 by 10 inch ectochrome transparency and using a special projector, they were projected from the front onto a highly reflective screen that was 40 feet by 90 feet. Large-scale front projection hadn't been done before. At the time, this was actually the largest front projector ever made. Normally, projections like this would be done from behind the screen, but the light that was reflected onto the rest of the set and the actors was weak enough not to be visible. Not on Kubrick's set! The sheer unprecedented size of his massive front projection setup required 1,500 individually controlled lamps on the ceiling of the soundstage. I don't know if you've ever been on a film set before, but those lamps are hot. They're hot as shit. Um, in an interview with Cinetropolis, Dan Richter talked about the harsh conditions. With the front projection system, the demands of lighting to get the proper match and color temperatures correct meant that the temperatures were sometimes over 100 on the set. We had medical personnel standing by and compressed air to be blasted into our costumes the moment Stanley called cut. The union also limited the time we could have the masks on. We had full contact lenses to color our eyes for close-ups, which got very painful as the dust rose. 
Front projection had been used in smaller settings before 2001 A Space Odyssey, mostly for still photography or television production. But the techniques that Kubrick and the MGM special effects team pioneered quickly became widely adopted in the film industry, until eventually being replaced by blue screen green screen systems in the 90s. But when you're inventing a new technology, you've got to figure it out as you go along. Not unlike our first ancestors who walked out of Africa. Since the screen occupied an entire wall of the stage, and the front projection rig was a water-cooled monstrosity, the sets were built on a giant rotating platform which covered most of the stage floor. Which means if they wanted to shoot a new angle, they had to rotate the entire set. On the other hand, most of Dawn of Man consists mainly of static long shots. There's a pan here, a tilt there, but essentially everything happens within the frame, like in a natural history museum display. It's a series of shots striking and stylized in their composition, utilizing pioneering and cutting-edge technology, but with an almost perceptible callback to the grammar of silent film, both from the static long shots to the lack of dialogue. And there you have it. The dawn of man. Man has dawned. Join me next week when we jump forward about 2.9 million years to discuss perhaps my all-time favorite movie, Quest for Fire. And every week after, we'll watch a new movie chronicling the steady slog of humanity's crazy journey from little-brained Harry's barely surviving on the savanna through the centuries and across the globe until we finally find ourselves the engineers of Earth's sixth mass extinction today. But don't worry, it's only been three years since Stephen Hawking predicted we had a century to get off the planet or face annihilation at our own hands. <laughs> <laughs>